Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block. And today, joining us on the show in person, in quite elaborate, lovely habiliments, is our friend and guest, David Pakman, managing partner at investment firm and investment advisor, Coin Fund. Before we dive in, and we've got a lot to catch up on, I think it's been about three years since we last had a proper interview, I want to take a minute to thank our sponsors. Huobi, one of the world's leading virtual asset exchanges, has been providing convenient and professional virtual asset management services to more than 50 million users in more than 160 countries for nearly a decade. At Huobi, their mission is to make crypto accessible, to help you understand risks and make informed decisions to protect you and your assets. Learn more today at Huobi.com. This episode is also brought to you by Ledin. From Bitcoin and USDC savings accounts to Bitcoin-backed loans, Ledin's financial services enable you to benefit from your holdings today without selling your Bitcoin. Learn more about Ledin at Ledin.io. Ledin, where your digital assets come to life. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblock.co slash terms dash service. All right. Like I said, David Pakman is on the show. I have to admit I was thinking about you as I was getting ready because I cut myself shaving Obviously, Dollar Shave Club was one of your big investments before you got into the crypto space. You were uh, leading venture efforts at Venrock. And then I think about four, was it was it three years now that you've kind of dived into crypto kind of fully with, with joining CoinFund? I know you were kind of doing stuff before that, but... Well, I, I think first you got to get rid of those Gillette razors and get some Dollar Shave Club once I you know. stop getting cut. Um, yeah, I kind of, you know, went into crypto dabbling in 2016, 2017, and, you know, just like everyone else fell down that hole and each year got more and more, but I've been full-time at CoinFund for a year. For just a year. Wow. I mean, crypto kind of, it moves so fast. I feel like the last year have been 10 years, right? I mean, so much has changed. Music NFTs have kind of become a thing. You have a huge background in music technology. Is that something that's interesting you? Super interesting. I'm, I'm super interested in it, but um, it's not happening yet. You know, I think we're all theorizing about how NFTs will impact all of intellectual property, especially digital intellectual property. And music is a prime example of that. But just looking at the numbers, it's not really happening yet. I don't think we've had our sort of crypto kitties moment, you know, around music yet or, um, found the right format or pricing mechanism or, or the right types of artists who will prosper in it. There's a lot of good experimentation. I'm pretty bullish. Um, I'm, I have a similar view as uh, Jesse Walden does, mm-hmm. um, which is that the NFT format is the song. We should just sell songs mm-hmm. um, and uh, artists should sell songs directly to their fans and cut out a lot of middlemen and have some scarcity around it and limited edition and bundle some access with it. Um, but it's just not happening in mass yet, but probably will. So the firm announced recently a $300 million Web3 fund. 
How would you break down the thesis behind that? Well, it's a multi-part thesis. One is we're long crypto. So like everyone else is probably on your show and, and you guys as well. Uh, we have a view that um, you know we're we're building the next version of the internet. It's going to be decentralized. Um, it uh, will mount a severe challenge to the way Web two applications are built on top of decentralized networks. And we got a lot of work to do to build that. And then you know crypto will probably eat the global financial system as well. And NFTs will impact intellectual property. You know, and we sum all that together in this really big idea, really large amount of value creation. So. We invest along the full landscape of, uh, of crypto and coin funds original roots were as a seed stage investor. And the firm has done very well since 2015 investing in seed stage companies. But we heard from a lot of CEOs like, hey, we, we love having crypto native investors on the cap table. You guys have been helpful. Can you lead my series A also? I'm raising more money. Things are going well. And the answer was no, can't because we don't have a fund that would support that. Um, we saw a lot of seed stage companies graduating to have real progress, and we wanted to invest in that stage too. So we raised a fund purposefully to invest at the you know Series A, maybe Series B stage of crypto projects that are showing some traction, and now the fund can operate both of those strategies. Great. So just Series A, do you do you think you'll get into the Bs and higher up the al alphabet? There's a little bit of theory behind why we like Series A-ish stage companies. Um, most technology is adopted along an S-curve, mm -hmm. and um, venture capital tends to invest long before there's growth, proven growth. And so where prior to the out years of the S-curve do you want to invest your capital? And I think we like seed because... Um, if you have good deal flow, you can spread your risk across a large portfolio, and if a couple of them work, you get great returns. We have good deal flow, and you're taking smaller bets. But if you look at that S-curve, just at that moment before the steepest part of value creation is kind of Series A stage, right? Mm -hmm. Like a company showing a little bit of progress. They've uh, maybe showing some evidence of product market fit, and they're going to raise not growth capital yet, but uh, you know, sort of $10, $15 million dollars. We like that because the steepest part of the value creation can happen just after that moment. So that's What's, why we like to what that. What defines that inflection point for you? I don't know if inflection point is the right sure. word, that turning yeah, I, point. Yeah, I think it is. Um, is, it, is it profitability? Is it, is it the size? Is it, is it revenue? I think it's, it's some demonstration of market traction, and that can come different ways. If it's a developer tool or technology or protocol, then it's like developer usage. Like, are, are people building on top of it um, and building interesting apps? If it's a consumer application, it's usage or uh, usage over time. Um, if it's a SaaS company, it's probably early revenue or pricing or something like that. So different modes for different types of companies, but there's some evidence that, hey, there's a market here that's interested in your product. How, how difficult is it to identify that turning point in something like NFTs or Web3 where the businesses aren't necessarily those SaaS models. So they're maybe a bit more difficult to parse through. I think your your characterization that it could be difficult is true for people who aren't crypto native because you don't know what to look for. But if you live in crypto worlds and you, you know, spend your time in the discords and you're talking to the communities and you're attending developer conferences, you get to learn about 
what the sentiment is around particular layers of technology. Um, you can look at uh, um, you know GitHub type statistics about adoption and usage. Obviously, smart contract deployment and on-chain metrics. So I think you can be smart about it. I would say in the absence of competitive capital, you have all the time in the world to look at that data and figure out when the inflection point happens. Unfortunately, we don't live in a world in the absence of competitive capital. So the real, I think, art, if you will, is is trying to find evidence of traction before everyone else has. So when it becomes consensus, it prices up very quickly. There is an abundance of capital, and I feel like too few companies to invest in at this point in time. There was, I felt like, a growing new wave of crypto entrepreneurs that came earlier this year, but obviously we're in a more stagnant point in the cycle. How do you elbow your way into certain deals when there are so many new market participants than when you got into the space and especially when CoinFund launched? Well, Jake and Alex and the other early members of the CoinFund team have been building a really incredible reputation since 2015 in crypto as thought leaders and I think as uh, good collaborators. You know, they're their personalities are super well suited to working closely with entrepreneurs to help build. They are, um, I think, authentically interested in trying to build a decentralized version of of the tech stack, and they believe in a lot of the crypto ethos. Um, and they've been right early before things mm. have happened. Like Jake called NFTs before I knew what NFT stood for, um, and they were early on stable coins and you know a number of other key pieces of of Web3. So I think they've built a great reputation. I've built more of a reputation in, in traditional tech and I'm working to build my crypto bona fides. Some of my investments help with that, like the leading the Series A round of Dapper and being on the board there has helped people sure. see that I'm not just a Johnny come lately. But, um, but I think the firm has worked hard on building that collaborative reputation. And as a former founder and CEO myself, you kind of want to work with people who are going to help you not just write you a check. And so I think CoinFund's made more than 150 investments since it was founded. And I think their portfolio today of active companies is north of 100 companies. So if you're a founder, you can diligence us pretty well by talking to other CEOs. What are they like? Are they helpful? Are they good people to work with? Are they more than just their capital? I think that's the best way to elbow in, as you say, is to let your track record of helping speak for itself. But there's, there's a lot of sharp elbows in investing, and, and you also have to be willing to get out there and sell a little bit. I would say coming from traditional tech, though, I find crypto to be um, a little bit more collaborative and syndicate friendly than maybe mm. where tech VC is, where there's a lot more in tech VC, traditional tech VC, there's definitely more mature sources of capital that are like, we want to take 100% of the round and don't want to let anyone else in. And crypto is, is thusly, I think, more, or so far, more collaborative and syndicate-friendly. So uh, you can be a part of a round without leading it and still be a meaningful uh, investor. Why do you think that is? I think maybe it's just the nature of crypto is it's being built by a community. I mean, DAOs and everything takes a communal bent to it. I mean, you know, we've got different structures and foundation structures and um, decentralized um, mechanisms for building software and running networks that are not um, the ones that we used in Web 2 with traditional CEOs led, uh, you know, 
um, hierarchical enterprises. And so with that amount of, uh, with that sort of different ethos, why wouldn't you want to assemble uh, a, a community of supporters early on? Just the whole notion of crypto incentives, right? That like the community gets to participate in the ownership kind of lends itself, I think, to a slightly larger cap table. Yeah, because it's a community. Right. Um, it's interesting. So walk us through a little bit about your role at CoinFund. I think maybe twofold. One is um, to help bring a traditional venture lens to the process of investing in crypto. It is still, even though we're, what, 10 or 11 years into crypto, it's still pretty immature uh, market. And I think a lot of norms are still being established. So maybe there's some usefulness to having um, a little bit more traditional investing lens um, about how do you build a process to make non-consensus investments? How do you train young investors to develop uh, independent thinking? So I would, I would say help a little bit that way. And the other is to make investments. Uh, and so I spend most of my time on the Series A fund, the recently announced fund, and a little bit of time on the seed fund, um, but but really focused on finding those inflection point companies and um, you know try, trying to help out. And that's my goal long term, right, is to build a... Uh, a, re- a great portfolio at CoinFund like I did at Venrock. When you think about the way in which entrepreneurs in crypto pitch VCs, how is it different from maybe the way it's done traditionally? Mm. Are there any unique nuances or idiosyncrasies that you found within the crypto entrepreneur community? And what are they maybe doing wrong? What would you like to see changed perhaps maybe there's a bit of there's less deference for the venture capitalist in crypto yeah and i i don't think we're i don't think i'm going to be able to get the community to change it's it's it's, it's me who has to change but I, I, lo- I like your question because i i struggle a little bit in that almost every meeting is a conversation and not a presentation mm. uh, in, in traditional tech like your first meeting with an entrepreneur is like here let me walk you through the deck and the reason I like a deck is it's an organized uh, roadmap for having a conversation that's meant to answer the 10 biggest questions you've got, right? Who's your competition and what's the go-to-market and who are the customers and how do you, what's the business model? So what is it? Just kind of like what we're doing here? Yeah, it's more, it, I've noticed it at least thus far, last few years, it's more uh, conversational and maybe they don't even bring the deck up. And I think that's okay, but it's the, the less formality of it um, doesn't let you observe how what's the structured thinking behind the founding of the company, mm. right? When when you ask someone a question, tell me the story of your company in ten minutes. That's an opportunity to use some logic to explain. Here's why I'm here, and here's why we think this makes a lot of sense to do. So it's just a little less formal than maybe what I'm used to. I don't mean to say like vent, traditional venture meetings are formal. They're not, but it's usually with a with a tool that structures the conversation. And I've noticed just way less than that. And I've had to ask actually for like the second meeting. Hey, w- would you guys come in and would you walk me through the deck? It's like, well, okay, we can do that if you want, but it's just not de rigueur. It's just not the way at least most meetings seem to be done. And maybe that's just a personal preference. Maybe I'm old. Maybe like it's just never going to be done that way again. I don't know. Um, but I find it, it's less than, op- I get more data from someone walking me through their story. It makes your job a little bit more difficult. Yeah, for sure. Not that it's necessarily... Annoying. Yeah, and I don't, to your other, second part of your question, I don't think it's out of a disdain for VCs. 
Mm -hmm. I just think like crypto is so much more like, well, didn't you already hear my story at the, you know, at DEF CON when I yeah. presented it? Like, I don't need to tell it to you again, right? You could have figured it out. Didn't you read the white paper already? Like, yeah. why, why do you need me to tell you this? The story? white paper's there. Right. Interesting point. So putting that aside, if that's just the way it is, that's, that's the cultural norm. Just thinking about it in its own siloed world, the crypto entrepreneurial landscape, what do you think some of the biggest mistakes an entrepreneur can make in that early process of raising capital from institutional investors? And uh, I guess maybe people don't have decks in the same. I've seen some pretty bad ones, I will have <laughs> right. to say. But, but uh, well, may, maybe that is maybe that that's where we can start. Where where can they go astray with the deck? And then maybe more broadly, but I'm trying to be very specific here. Put put sort of the old world aside. Maybe um, just taking crypto, the crypto world as it is. Maybe the we can dissect like, well, what's the downside of being more informal during your capital raising process? And and one of the things that could be um, could result from that is that you're less successful raising capital. I don't know that that's true, but but I, I believe that it's possible that it's been much easier to raise in crypto for a long time because we had the ICO boom. We could now we have even post ICO we have like you can make tokens and do a token presale. That the, there's an informality about well, if I don't raise from VCs, there's other ways for me to get capital. The community will fund me. And by the way, that's been true for a number of years during the you know crypto decade. Um, but in times that we're in now and that we may be in for some time, being good at raising capital is a required skill for an entrepreneur. It's not so easy as like, I'm just gonna launch some tokens and sell them. Um, so making sure you've got a way to reliably tell your story um, and have a deck that tells it well, I think is a good, important skill. So I would push that maybe this um, old way of doing things will have some more relevance uh, in the macro environment we're in now. Yeah, and there's just an abundance of capital at play sitting on the proverbial sidelines that just kind of hover over us like a dark cloud <laughs> it's always there but it's not doing much to help our 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 fallen bags so to speak yeah and i'll be interested in hearing your wisdom about when that's all coming in um, but i think the you know the the burden of proof goes up higher in markets like this where people want more investors want more traction or more evidence that there's something here versus like religious conviction that mm -hmm. if you build it they will come um, and knowing that it might take longer to build things because we're in an uncertain time and therefore you burn more capital. So you got to be kind of good at raising capital and you might have to raise it a little bit more traditionally than the pure, um, you know, the ways we've raised it in crypto in the past. Um, I don't know. That's just one view. In, in periods when capital's super abundant, maybe you can be kind of lousy at it because it just finds its way to you, but it doesn't seem like we're in that market right now. Isn't it funny how in early markets, the the breakdown or the landscape looks similar regardless of what whatever industry you're operating in. We think about the early days of, of uh, internet music platforms. There were some that were operating in the, not the shadow, so to speak, but Gray outside area. the letter of the law. Yeah. You know, we all remember Napster and LimeWire and, and the like. 
Um, and today we have a similar situation with crypto. There's some projects that are, you know, a, a little less buttoned up or put together than others. And then 10 years later, 15 years later, you get, you know, the, the big giant or, or giants fall like Pandora, you know, is effectively irrelevant now and MySpace and we have Spotify. How do you think about those evolutions and, and what threads kind of tie them together? It's a, I love your framing here because there's some interesting analogies, I think, from the digital music wars. Um, in going through that period of uncertainty as music became digital and new businesses came to market, internet music companies, there was some uncertainty about, well, what are the rights required to operate here? Um, Napster took the view that none are required. Uh, <laughs> um, and Pandora and some of the early folks had to negotiate effectively new licenses that didn't exist. But a lot of the lawyers said there is already very clear laws around copyright and usage here. We don't need new laws for internet music. These old ones are going to hold up just fine. Mm. And you had some loud entrepreneurs saying it's all going to be different this time. But actually, they were wrong. There were a couple new rights created, or at least some revenue streams associated with some new rights. But for the most part, copyright didn't have to change to allow digital music to happen. Here we are in crypto, and what many of us are saying is these laws from 1933 and 34, these regulations, actually have to change. We need new ones. Everything's different this time. And what do you hear from most of TradFi and certainly the regulators? We don't need anything new. These will perfectly apply, and you guys need to fall in line with them under the old uh, you know, regimes. So will crypto sort of bend to the knee of, of the old guards' regulations in the same way that digital music companies ultimately did? And, and I agree with your indictment that they did. The digital music companies ultimately did bend to the knee of traditional copyright law um, and had to negotiate licenses under that regime, which, by the way, make them vastly unprofitable. Yes. Like Spotify is an incredible company and a beautiful service and a great product, and it makes no money. Yeah. It's not a profitable company. So, like, uh, what, what will happen here is the question. And uh, don't have an answer, can't quite <laughs> predict the future. Um, however, uh, I think some of it has to do with political will, uh, right? Because the, the thing that would change it would be legislative in its nature, right? New laws or new rules forced on agencies. And those are political forces. And the Internet was really bad early on at creating potent political forces that influenced elections or regulatory. But we've seen crypto flex their bags, right? Yeah. And so maybe the question here I ask is, what is the political will of crypto to force the hand of regulators and legislators to, to make it different? Yeah. Well, I think there's definitely a powerful force there. It's, it's money. Music is powerful. People, people love music, but people love money. Yeah. So I think that may be one lens to look through what happens here. But certainly the current path with this administration is it's mm. fine the way it is. Now, a couple legislators in the U.S. saying, no, it, you know, we has to change a bit. So I think this is, remains to be seen. And by the way, I think most of us would be disappointed if the future path for crypto was purely through the securities laws of the 1930s. It feels like there are modifications we could make to that that would be good for the crypto ecosystem. That may not be good for traditional finance, which has a lot of money at stake, but it would be good for innovation. You know, one thing that we proposed during the digital music wars that might be interesting here was safe harbors 
which says in this period of uncertainty, as the laws are worked out in the courts and through voluntary agreements and legislation, let's at least put good actors in a bucket that says you're intending to be good, you're intending to comply, but, but everything's uncertain right now. So as long as you at least agree to do ABC, put some money into reserves for royalties or um, agree not to, you know, willfully break copyright laws, um, th- then you're safe. You, won't, you don't go to jail. And uh, there's similar questions around crypto, like, can I at least sell NFTs and, not, and be certain that it's not a security? Uh, can I at least uh, administer a test that feels like the Howey test is, and document, you know, as best I can as an exchange to decide which tokens to list, which ones are securities or not? Can I, you know, if I, if I show myself to be a good actor, can I at least not go to jail if mm. we determine later that um, the rules are different or that the definition of securities are different. And there's, there's no protection for that today. You said that when you launched the fund that there was a hole for the Series A category. Explain what you mean by that. Why are they not the darling? I guess maybe because maybe there's this, there's obviously the seeds are not up that S curve to the same degree. And then you might have some opportunities in those growth stage companies where their valuations have come down by quite a bit. So there's maybe an opportunity there. And that leaves the A's as the forgotten ones. You're painting, I think, a picture that I agree with. There's a lot of seed capital. So a lot of companies get early stage financing. And when something shows late stage growth, there's a lot of capital for that. It's less risk. Yeah. So what happens in between? Where to your, you asked the question earlier, like, how do you know that something's, uh, you know, hitting this inflection point mm-hmm. if it's not yet obvious to everyone? I think that largely in any industry requires specialization. It requires an investor who really understands the space, just like it would for healthcare or mm-hmm. energy or anything else. So crypto native investors, I think, tend to be better at evaluating these periods of uncertainty between a concept on a napkin and proven growth. Um, and so we just found that there was less capital there. There's plenty of capital for Series A stage tech companies, but there's not tons of crypto native investing firms that are focused on the sort of Series A pre-significant traction. That's why we raised the fund. Uh, and we heard that, as I mentioned earlier, from our entrepreneurs. Like, I'd like to raise from a crypto native investor for my Series A, not from just a traditional VC who might have like one partner who does crypto. I'd rather be with a firm that has 10 people who do crypto. So I think that was the observation we made. I'm not saying there's no crypto native capital for Series A, but there is less in that uh, stage than there is in seed or late stage. Oh, understood. That makes sense. Those poor, those poor forgotten A's. I uh, my heart skips a beat for them. <laughs> uh, so walk us through. You were in a meeting today where you had to wear a a tie. I did. Who are those folks you're meeting with? Uh, well, I'll just tell Is you. Is that, that on the, the IRA side? I'll give you the the geographic location, and you probably can guess. It was like uh, Park Avenue in the fifties. Oh yeah. Yeah. So a lot of those people. Still My wore old ties. stomping ground. <laughs> right. Did you wear a tie, Frank? Ever? I used to wear a tie quite a bit. I bet you have some nice ties. Uh, actually, I do. When we were in D.C., I wore a tie every day. I got a lot of compliments. There was. This conference, the Securities Traders Association conference, when I went in 2019, it's probably 95% ties. Wow. And now this year, I think it was probably like 10% or less ties. 
So I, uh, yeah, unlike unlike today, I was. You look great. Don't worry. I was, Every, you should see what he's wearing, everyone. It's yeah, he's very fancy. <laughs> yeah. um, this is all. This is all uh, Balenciaga, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, um, I actually, um, I'm going to name drop David Tish, who's been in uh, tech angel investing for more than a decade. And I remember his like favorite clothing style was like luxury streetwear. Now, this Mm. is before like uh, Supreme and everything popularized. Or Kith. Yeah, Kith, exactly. Um, Pre-Kith and pre-Supreme, but he like, it was basically expensive sweatpants. And that is his, uh, Dave, if you're listening, which you're probably not. Um, like Frank's following your path. That T-shirt is probably well. It's one of one, isn't it? That T-shirt. Yeah, exactly. This this is our yeah. Shout out to Wall Street rides far. Mm-hmm. Thought my dry cleaning would be here, but it was not. Well, maybe your your question about tie wearing. Um, oh wait, we kind of yeah. Where, yeah. Well, where are you going with this? Well, I'm going like um, like where's institutional oh, money sure. in crypto uh, on Park yeah. Avenue? Yeah, exactly. And what's their pace of, of adoption here? Going back to your question about are they going to rescue our bags? Uh, when, when does the money on the sidelines come in? And, uh, you know, as an evidence-based investor, like, there's nothing but good news over time in this, in this question, right? There are more and more institutions offering services for their customers to buy. There's more institutional capital going in. We raised a fund from um, way more institutional money about about 60% institutional than our previous funds, which mm-hmm. were heavily high net worths and crypto entrepreneurs. So there's um, there's a steady drumbeat of belief. And and strangely, I mean, we, we raised a fund during a bear market. Mm-hmm. From Teachers Retirement System of yeah. Texas, Stepstone Group, Adam Street Partners. Those are some private market investment firms. Yeah, big ones. Um, I think uh, Adam Street fif- manages $50 billion. I think <clears throat> Stepstone is like $100 billion. Um, and th- the turning of the market actually made them more enthusiastic, right? Just, you know, better entry pricing for early stage investors during bear markets. But they didn't pack up and go home this time, which I think we all saw in 2018, right? Like yeah. it was over for how long? And so this time's different, right? I think we, you, you see this probably more than I do, but people are still building during this bear market. There's institutional money that's not super scared. They um, expect things to come back at some point. Crypto's following more of the macro events than the micro ones. It's not like a crypto-specific problem that's led to the you know low pricing. Um, the question for me is like, what are the catalysts that drive crypto to outpace the traditional macro recovery. Uh, what usage are we looking for? What use cases are we looking for? What demonstrates crypto's health relative to the macros? And boy, that's the fun question, right? Uh, and that's the best question to ask, I think, at developer conferences. Is like, you know, what are you working on and what use cases will it enable that we don't have today? One big one is interoperability, right? Everyone's been talking about this for a year. But if we assume there's going to be multiple base layers, um, then as a software developer, I want my apps to work across them uh, or at least allow for cross-chain compatibility and movement of assets. And if we had that, uh, does that make crypto easier to use? Um, does it uh, obfuscate or abstract away some of the complexities around buying and selling digital assets? And will that be a catalyst for uh, more mainstream crypto adoption? That's a good question. 
Wobi, one of the world's leading virtual asset exchanges, has been providing convenient and professional virtual asset services to more than 50 million users in more than 160 countries for nearly a decade. At Wobi, their mission is to make crypto accessible, building the go-to hub for the next billion crypto users. Wobi believes crypto shouldn't have any barriers to entry. Wobi is committed to asset and platform security to help you understand risks and make informed decisions to protect you and your assets. Learn more today at Wobi.com. I also want to give a shout out to Ledin. Ledin, Bitcoin-backed loans and savings by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. As we've seen, not all digital asset lenders are created equal. Ledin prioritizes safeguarding clients' assets with its robust risk management approach. That is why Ledin doesn't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation strategies with its clients' assets and only supports Bitcoin and USDC two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. Ledin is also dedicated to transparency, which is why they are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation. Learn more about Ledin at ledin.io. Ledin, where your digital assets come to life. At what point do you think the usage of some of these platforms like different NFTs, for instance, at what point do you think the price won't matter where people will still engage with these products or apps even if token price doesn't go up? People still use their iPhone and search the internet every single day regardless of whether or not their assets are up or down. When is crypto that ubiquitous? Well, I'll take your answer first on that. <laughs> um, I guess a few things. I, th I think of NFTs a little bit different than broader crypto asset prices. I think you are describing a known consumer phenomenon or human psychology phenomenon that like high prices get people to spend, you know, to invest more than low prices, despite the obvious, um, you know, mistake of that approach. But w when I was first digging into nfts i read a few articles on why do people collect things mm -hmm. why do humans collect things i wrote mm -hmm. about this in a blog post but like there were seven different reasons mm. one of them is because it's an appreciable asset but only one of seven is you buy a baseball card because you think it's going to be worth more later there are other reasons why people collect uh to show affinity with a brand or a product or a team or something like that there's like um to organize the world like some people do it because it's like a you know, a, a mentally fulfilling thing to do to complete a set, obviously for uh, part of your identity, right? Showing off what the tribe you're a part of, uh, seven different reasons. And so some of those are independent of asset prices, mm. which is why NFT volume is not zero right now. Mm -hmm. In fact, like um, NFL All Day, the second major NFT product from Dapper uh, shipped this year, and their numbers, which are public, you can see on chain, um, are really quite strong. Um, you know, tens of thousands of people buying, which compared to the, you know, four or five billion on the internet is a small number, but compared to the number of people buying NFTs is a, is an interesting number. So even in the midst of a bear market, like people are collecting sports NFTs. Now asset prices are down uh, and there's not as much of a mania around it, which might be healthier. Um, I mean, the, a lot of people play Fortnite and, and play Roblox independent of like, what's the external value of the, of the digital company. goods or the company, right? Yeah. 
So I think that you can build consumer experiences that are not tied to asset prices. But uh, um, someone else pointed this out to me a few years ago. The crypto world is just like the tech world where there's a mark to market every day on early stage startups, right? If we marked to market every traditional tech company, you'd have mania <laughs> around what's happening every day in startup land, maybe very similar to what happened in crypto. So it's somewhat, I think, human nature to get excited about stuff when prices are up and, and not be excited when they're down. But that's why it's incumbent on us to build some other use cases around uh, crypto other than just like trading digital assets, right? Buying and selling tokens. Yeah. I mean, that is, you're speaking to a very key aspect of human nature. You see it time and time again with the financial crisis. Everyone needed to buy an investment property. One thing this cycle, it was NFTs. Everybody needed their NFT. Totally. Because the price is going up. Price is going up. Um, one thing that uh, Seth and I talk about, Seth Gins, who's not been on this podcast and really should be, we have to get him on he's here. Been dodging, yeah. He's been dodging us. Um, one thing that he and I have talked about is in dissecting, like, why was everyone buying crypto in 2017, 2016? And by the way, who were the buyers? Um, why would you be buying these highly speculative digital assets? One, one answer was, you, as an individual investor, you can't get into tech startups. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was no yield anywhere else on the planet, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and most public tech companies were like, you know, at their 30 or 50% of your growth, but there's no way to get 800% of your growth because you yeah. couldn't, right? But you could in crypto. So if we're now going into a world yeah. where tech might be muted in its growth, public tech might be muted in its growth prospects, does crypto, is crypto sort of an unlock again about where you get um, equity type returns? Yields good in, in safe assets now, right? In a high rate environment, you can mm -hmm. get your 4% 4, 4 somewhere else. But, but where will you get your high multiples, particularly if we're going to be in a macro malaise of traditional tech for a long time, which some people believe? So maybe actually this economy will be a catalyst for digital asset ownership again. Mm. I certainly hope so. <laughs> um, I feel like, you know, in hindsight, it's, it was so glaringly obvious that we were reaching the peak. I remember sitting in various bars and restaurants hearing, overhearing conversations about how much the waitress made on Dogecoin. And right. I was in LA once right at the peak and the two barbers were going back and forth about how, how they were moving their funds from Kraken to Coinbase to Crypto.com and it was it was really like almost everyone like it had kind of breached um, the human psyche. Like at some point in time, crypto was and this this is a quote from Sam Bankman um, when I spoke with him about a year and a half ago, I think. And at, at the peak, I feel like everyone or most people were thinking about crypto. To some extent, it took up like 15% of their headspace unless you were over the age of 75 or a child, right? And it's, it's interesting, like, how do you, how do, how do you sort of come back from that after people have been sort of burned? It kind of adds a, an impediment, right? It's almost like I wish some of these assets didn't have this 
speculative fervor because it kind of breeds a distrust for when these things become more ubiquitous. So, well, let's talk about that. I mean, I think this would be a really troubling observation if it hasn't, if it hadn't already happened hundreds of times in every other market, right? I think we should just submit like this is what happens in markets, you know, maybe a result of human psychology and other reasons, but like this, maybe we should look at as a feature, not a bug of the way new markets are built out that we as an early mania. This is the Gardner hype cycle and mm-hmm. the crossing the chasm. And like this, you know, tomes have been written about this academic studies. This is what markets do. So let's not lament that they don't, they do. And, and you're right. It does make things harder for us now when we're in the trough of disillusionment, mm-hmm. but it also helped us attract a huge amount of capital to the space and, and bring motivated people over to build. You know, one thing we're, we're not spending much time talking about here is like, what is being built right now? And is that interesting? And this is what, through the lens of a traditional tech person, this is the most exciting thing that's happening in crypto. Not, not the question of like, when will Bitcoin be, you know, 500,000? Um, but are we actually building the next version of the internet? And what will its attributes be? And is that good for the world and interesting? And like, I'm pretty excited by some of the prospects of actually replacing, let's call it the AWS tech stack with open decentralized protocols that have um, the rules of the road can't change on a software developer. I mean, I think one of the th- the reasons this could be very promising is if there's 30 million people who can write code in the world and that number is going up every year. And if the place they write code is on top of blockchains because they can permissionlessly deploy their dApp and no one can pull it out of the app store and no one can rip the API out from under them if it's working and or demand a 30% tax, that's an interesting motivation for people who write software to build here. And if uh, 30 million people decide like this is a better, or even 5 million people of those decide this is a better place to write software on, like that's a massive fundamental change. And blockchains are not are going to go from being worth, what's Ethereum worth, 160 billion today mm-hmm. to worth trillions. There's just like that to me feels somewhat self-evident. So is this an interesting place for software people to build and why is a really good question. The question we get caught up in a lot is, why do consumers care about this? Um, but that's the second order question. And by the way, consumers will show up wherever the great apps are. Mm-hmm. Like no one said like, why do consumers care about um, the first few apps built on the iPhone? Um, it was when you saw Uber and you said like, the only place to use anything like Uber is on an iPhone. Mm-hmm. Well, then you were like, this is a game changer, totally changes the way I experience life. If, if developers build amazing experiences on top of blockchains and the only way to use them is to use the dApp, then the, then the consumers show up. NFT digital collectibles cannot be made in a way that are interoperable and you know, provably yours outside of you know, proprietary ecosystems until blockchains were created and, and the NFT standard was created. That's novel. Like That's a new thing. The planet did not have provable, independently owned digital intellectual property. That could be scarce. Now we do. I think that's a really big deal. I could be wrong about the timing here. It may not be three or five years from now. It could be 10 or 20 years. But if we are building a new internet with some of these properties, that's like the biggest idea that anyone's ever had. And that, that's what attracts me to it. And I try not to spend my day staring at prices on the block um, and, and worry about what does it mean for the short term. Is that why our traffic's down so just bad? Just me. Yeah, it's just I'm reading get, the research, get back, though. Get back to checking it. I read all the research. Incessantly. Um, you know, some people would say 
if you're wrong on timing, you're still wrong. Totally, hundred percent. That's is, my is, biggest worry. Is that um, is that is that a truism? It is no, for sure. Especially in in, yeah. in, in venture investing, because your fun life is eight or ten years, mm-hmm. and if somebody takes twelve, like <laughs> it didn't matter. Um, so th- this is the biggest unknown. I actually think like the um, how long if this is a new internet, how long will it take? And these things tend to take ten or twenty years, but we're more than ten years in, so we only got eight years left. Yeah, that's a scary thought. I, I think about the number of users Coinbase has, and it's yeah, 100, 100 million, which 100 million. scares me. It makes me think we're not so early. That's okay. a lot of people. But, but that's wallets, because I just looked again, but it's like 9 million monthly transacting users. Okay, so sure. That's like they're active users, and that's not a big number. No, that's not that many. So where do you think, or where do you find yourselves being the most contrarian? Well, let's see. I have big questions about does the token model work at every layer of the stack? So, so today we know that tokenizing blockchains seems to work. It creates good crypto and crypto economic incentives for miners, and now it creates good crypto economic incentives for stakers, and it seems to create good crypto economic incentives for developers. Um, so we have an interesting like open source a business model for open source software at the base layers. But as we go up the stack and you build other things, data services, AI, personalization, databases, can you tokenize all of that? And will, will it serve a good purpose? Will developers value those tokens? Will consumers want to pay in them? And can we trade them and will they have value? If it, and, and a lot of people in crypto believe yes, but there's not evidence yet that it will work. Mm. And so if we're wrong there, by the way, that only certain things can be tokenized and, and a lot of other things can't, then this might be a little less of an interest. I mean, isn't one of the reasons the block exists because we have more than one or two tokens to talk about, <laughs> right? So if we have thousands, then you really need the block. Um, if we have three or six, like I'm not so sure, you know, the block becomes something different. So uh, this is an open question that I think most people in crypto say de facto it will happen that I'm, I'm waiting for more evidence on. So maybe that's contrarian in crypto land. Less tokens, although I th- think we're moving away from the high golden era of the token, of of when token, not why token. Mm-hmm. What else am I contrarian? Well, first, I think investing in crypto right now is probably provably contrarian. So all, all three of us in this <laughs> room right now are, are contrarian. Um, what else? I think... Um, I think I'm a little more sanguine on like the idea that we're going to have a completely different legislative and regulatory regime to run free here. Like I think we're more likely to be constrained by existing uh, laws than to be able to redefine everything. And I think that crimps a lot of our running room, if you will. Mm. Right. Um, so I don't know if that's contrarian or not. Um, but it goes back to my comment earlier that there's a lot of political power and money invested in making sure you can't take the entire financial system and just run it on open source blockchains without a bunch of middlemen. Like there's a bunch of banks that'll have something to say about that first. Yeah. Or they're going to want to get their own version of it out there first. Well, let's talk about stable coins for a minute. A demonstrably useful, critical component of crypto. Um, we have questions about what constitutes a stable stablecoin? Um, will al- our algorithmic stablecoins a real thing, and should we adopt them um, for asset-backed stablecoins? How much disclosure is necessary? How much auditing is necessary of the backing? What are they allowed to buy to back it? Um, and do you need a banking license to operate them? Well, if I'm a bank and I'm looking at 
circle uh, I or any of the or USDT, I would probably say like, this seems to be a really easy business to operate. We're good at like holding assets and then like making a VIG on it. We should be in the stablecoin business. How can we make sure we're in the stablecoin business? Why don't we lobby that you need a banking license to issue stablecoin, right? Okay, well now all the banks are in and it's, it becomes a race for crypto startups to get banking licenses, which is, you know, a multi-year process and expense. So, like, I think that that's an area where we could see institutions jumping into crypto, but also kind of crimping the entrepreneurial opportunity there. Mm, bad news. Bad news for Mr. Allaire. Well, he might become a bank before. I think they're, happens, yeah, right? they're on that journey. Yeah. They had a great conference. I mean, it didn't feel like a bear market there. And for them, it's not. I mean, they're they're kind of isolated with, yeah. with rates increasing. Right. Um, right. And they, like they repriced their, their SPAC because of it. 900 people. At, this was in San Francisco or at the... Well, well, yes. But no, there were thousands of people. But the firm is 900. Oh, oh, at Circle, yeah. Which I thought was... That's awesome. Yeah, which I is mean, awesome. I want them to succeed. Maybe one day we'll we'll get there at the block. We're about one sixty five. Really? Yeah, it's fantastic. There's only five of us in the office on a given yeah, day, I but that. <laughs> yeah, but it's kind of like this is a weird thought. But I always think of Ireland like there are fifty million Irish people like globally, right. but only like three million live in Ireland. It's kind of like the block. If all one hundred and sixty of us came to this office, it, you know, imagine if all the Irish stayed in Ireland, it would just be. It'd be like, it'd be like Shanghai or something. Well, you just go to any pub in the world between five and six p.m. You can find them all, right? Isn't yeah, that true? yeah. There's, so, they're all over the place. Yeah. So we just did some math. Yeah. And so far this season, we've covered about one point seven billion dollars worth of fund launches that we announced. Yeah, Variant. Yep. Framework. Yep. Sequoia. Yep. Spartan Group and Block Tower. That's great. Well, so. That's a good question to talk about is like, notice how many of those are crypto native mm-hmm. versus traditional. Well, they know to come on the show. Yes, we that's, all do. That's the... It's where the audience is. And it's funny, you know, so many... I, I feel like we, we need to like d- diversify. We've been having so many venture capitalists on. I don't CEOs. know. CEOs. Yeah, we need more CEOs. I think they're just busy building. Yeah, and they only come talk to you when they have something to promote. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but um, I mean that's what we're chasing is meeting all of them. <laughs> and you do good. You do like great research. So, yeah. Like you're you're constantly looking at them. You you know them. Yeah, it's helpful. I you know, we have this team of analysts uh, on whom I rely, and if there's a guest that I'm not particularly familiar with, I'll hop on the phone with them and just have them give me the the rundown. But that's awesome. It's a great resource. I mean, I plow your site every day to read about something it's it's awesome like those analysts are super helpful for our job (laughs) what what are you most excited about looking towards the next six months yeah so a a few a few answers to that question i think first um the the infrastructure for building robust web3 experiences is immature today no surprise there um so there's a lot more of the stack to build and if you go talk to an experienced web two entrepreneur, whether they built a social network or a game or some, you know, even online banking application, the tools and the pieces of the stack that you would build on in web two are more plentiful today for creating that rich experience than web three. 
we got way more work to do on Web3. So no surprise, a lot of our investments is still in that stack. I talked about a few databases, AI, personalization, um, interoperability, hiding the complexities of, of wallets, right? You know, custodial versus non-custodial, all that infrastructure. So we, we do have a lot of investing in, in that stack. Dev tools. I'm still excited about NFTs, mm-hmm. gaming, play to earn as an interesting model. The one that I'm, I don't see the evidence for yet that I'm super psyched for is learn to earn. Mm. And um, that's because if we already know, as we talked about earlier, that like the crypto incentive model is interesting to people, right? Software developers, some users, the DeFi liquidity pool model of staking. These are all ways to take an asset and pledge it effectively and, and earn yield on it, earn something on it. So the question is, can you earn yield on your time? And uh, and if so, going to human psychology, what do we want people to spend time on? Well, if retraining yourself or learning new skills is something that can earn you economic reward beyond the other job you might get from it, that's really powerful. It's really interesting. So um, we saw a massive boom in Web2 online learning, online college degrees, uh, the Udacities and the you know boot online boot camps, the ways of learning coding, uh, big big uh, change in how learning is done. But that's there's no economic incentive to do it beyond the reward it may give you at work. But can you earn uh, crypto for learning things? And that's an experiment. It's an open question. I don't have the answer for today, but I'm really interested in that because not only is it a good business model if you can you know incent people to use your product, but can we help the world go through uh, a retraining mm. for the online software-based future away from traditional you know, truck driving or manufacturing industries. Uh, and if we can, that's a really interesting way to up-level the workforce. What do you think your biggest piece of, of advice would be for aspiring entrepreneurs in crypto? Don't listen to me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, th- I think, um, you know, build with a purpose, right? Like focus on a customer, an unmet need. Build something that is a combination of where you have some religious conviction about where the future could be, but but couple that with evidence and um, and build to traction, right? Don't just assume that people show up if you build it, but like get feedback from the market and build along a curve of adoption. You said it already, like if you're wrong with timing, you're wrong. So what is evidence of traction mm. that is the de- that is the data that de-risks that you're wrong on timing and if you are wrong then pivot find some traction yeah yeah so that this is not uh, super esoteric advice right but but i we have a danger in, in crypto of building and just assuming that everything's going to be different and everything will come it's not different in fact it's very much similar to just the way the world works well, David, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Amazing to be on this show. I was trying to figure out, are you the the Jimmy Fallon of crypto? But I, I gave that award to John D'Agostino. Are you the James Corden of crypto? <laughs> and and I would say no, because he was just kicked out of Balthazar. I yeah. read, and, and you're not kicked out of Balthazar. You're probably not mean to staff. Yeah. So I'm pretty nice. You know, are you I did the, see that. I did see that. So so who are you? Are you the the Mike Wallace of crypto? Are you the Walter Cronkite of crypto? I'm trying to, f- I'm, I don't have the answer to this yet. 
Cronkite I, with the mustache? I think we can we can opt for the latter. Okay. Um, but I'll stop you there before <laughs> my my ego just completely um, balloons out of the room. So where can we uh, learn more about what you're working on? Is there a way for us to stalk you, follow you? Please. Uh, I'm Pacman, P-A-K-M-A-N on Twitter. DMs are open. And we are coinfund.io. Come visit us, learn about us, get in touch. Love to meet amazing entrepreneurs. Thanks. Today, my guest was David Pacman, managing partner at crypto investment firm CoinFund. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have a great day.